Yes, that's right. You're looking at me with new respect. I can tell. I knew it would happen. If you're new, this is the first time I've used the, the pulpit up here, and uh, it's great. You know, usually to look down on you, I have to sort of abstract things, but now I can just do it naturally. We're going to be looking at the preface to the Ten Commandments today, uh, which is Exodus 20, chapter uh, verses 1 to 3. Exodus 20, the same text is printed there in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, story told of a convent school in the assembly hall. On one end, there was a basket of apples. A sign in front of it said, Take only one. God is watching. And at the other end of the convent hall, there was a basket of chocolate chip cookies. And a sign on it said, take all you want. God is watching the apples. I <laughs> thought that was pretty good. Um, both of them kind of describe ways that we think about God's rules and his law. Um, you know, one sees God as stingy and withholding and wonders, you know... Um, how can we be stricter? You know, how can we be more compliant to make sure that God is happy with us? The other's a little more mischievous, uh, but still feels like you know if if we can get away with things, we'll be a lot happier than if we do what God wants us to do. You know, so you've kind of got the the strict and the mischievous, or the compliant and the mischievous. And the mischievous people are more fun, I think you'd say. But really, both the compliant and the mischievous miss a whole lot about what it means to know God and be in a relationship with Him. And look at God's law and His rules through a lens that really isn't the right lens. You know, it's really not what's true about God and His law. Because uh, the Christian law, God's law, only makes sense in the context of a really free relationship with God. Um, if you try to understand God's Law, apart from a relationship with Him through His grace that feels really open and free, then uh, you're just going to be trying to knuckle under authority. And you're going to have something that's uh, far less beautiful and far less delightful than the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. The preface to the Ten Commandments talks about the relationship before we're given the rules. And that order matters because our, the rules make sense in the context of that relationship. And so that's what we're going to look at today, the preface to the law, and just the whole idea of the kind of relationship in which the law makes any sense. So let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, I ask that you would help us today, that you would convince us somehow that we really are free and delightful in your sight because of what Jesus has done for us. And that you'd reshape the pathological ways we've come to think about you and what it means to obey you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me, beginning of verse 1 of Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. to God. Uh, Chuck Palahniuk uh, is a kind of a, he's an author of uh, strange books and somewhat of a cultural commentator. Told a story about a uh, 
college psychology experiment. If you're in college, don't sign up for a psychology experiment. I mean, I don't know if anybody's told you that before, but that's good advice that you should take. But they had an experiment done about dental hygiene. And um, they showed people pictures of tooth decay and gum disease. And what they learned was if they showed people mild cases of tooth decay and gum disease, it would really uh, inspire them to work harder on their own hygiene. They'd floss and brush a lot more. It helped them. But when they showed people super advanced cases of tooth decay, people just shut down and gave up and uh, had a lot worse dental hygiene uh, because it looked hopeless to them and they were in despair over it. So maybe that's just idiot college students uh, responding that way. But there's something analogous in that to the way we look at the law. You know, um, my worry is that we start talking about the Ten Commandments at church, then people with any kind of honesty about themselves and sensitive consciences are going to say, um, what's the use? You know, Let's really dig in and understand what's really required by God's law. That way we can feel even worse about ourselves and even guiltier. It'll be great. Right? I can be in total despair now. I'm so glad I know that the ways I was breaking God's law before weren't the worst of it, and there's a whole lot worse than that to be found under the substrate. Yeah. Um, and I really don't want that to happen. There's a story told of a, a, a county agent who went out to speak to a farmer about his farming. The guy was fresh out of college, and he had a lot of ideas about agriculture. And he goes to the old farmer, and he says, hey, I've got these brochures for you. I'd love to be able to help you farm better. And the farmer said, well, thank you, but um, I ain't farming as good as I know how now. <laughs> you could tell me more about how to be a better farmer, but I'm not farming as well as I know how to now. So you want me to tell you more about what it means to keep God's law and what Jesus really demands that you do to keep his law when you're not keeping what you know of it now? Do you really want a more sophisticated uh, diagnostic for yourself so you can feel really awful about yourself and just shut down in despair. Um, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. And that's not what we're given in the Ten Commandments. But if you don't read them in light of the preface, that's what you can easily uh, misconstrue the commandments to be. It's just a way to make you feel even worse about yourself to list all the other things that you haven't been doing or that you have been doing that you shouldn't. So, grace comes first into a relationship with God through what Jesus has done for us. Then the law makes sense in the context of that relationship. And if you don't get that right, you're always going to misconstrue the law, misconstrue what it means to know Him. I mean, the, the Ten Commandments are the charter for a newly freed people. They're emancipated, and now this is their new free life. They're rescued from years of slavery, crushing slavery in Egypt. Now they're set free to be God's people. And this is their charter of what their beautiful new life is going to be in freedom. Do you ever think about the law that way? Or do you just think, oh, yeah, there's the law. I should be better than I am. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll try to do better. I'll try harder. I'm sorry. I think that's how most Christians actually think about the law. Laws make sense in light of the relationship we have with God. I'm going to tell you two things about the relationship we have with Him. One is... A relationship with God has rules. And the second one is that a uh, relationship with God has freedom. Rules and freedom. Those two things that kind of come out in this preface. First, relationship with God has rules. Um, this relationship, he says, 
I am the Lord your God. That is Yahweh your God. And the word Yahweh is the name that God gave to Israel. It's His covenant name, relational name. It's, it, it implies tenderness and intimacy. You're mine and I'm yours. Like God is always willing to be known as Israel's God after that. It's like for us to be Christians means that God is willing uh, to be known as our God. Right? He's given us His name. We're in this kind of relationship. Uh, we are His people always. That's our identity. He's willing to have us. He wants that kind of relationship with us, He says. He's the one who heard the affliction, the cries when they were in slavery, how they were oppressed, and said, don't you see, don't you care, aren't you going to help us? And He's the one who said, yes, I do hear, and I do care, and I am going to help you. And He came down, remember all the plagues in Egypt, if you know your Old Testament or your movies, you know, uh, that God used to deliver His people out from Egypt, defeated the superpower of the world, Egypt at the time, and brought His people out safe through the Red Sea. He came to their rescue. Um, and now they have this relationship with Him. He didn't do it because they were good people. He did it because they were His people. It's a relationship they have with Him because of His grace. He said, I love you. I want relationship with you. I want you to be mine. And so He goes and rescues them. And He says, that's the context for my law. But relationships have rules. And the best example I can think of this for this is uh, wedding vows. Right? Marriages have rules. Uh, there are rules we state in our vows. I will be exclusively loyal to you. I will be committed to you in sickness and in health, uh, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Uh, I will forsake all others and cling only to you. I'll defer my rights to yours. Everything I have is yours. Um, those are rules. right? But... They're not like oppressive laws, but they're descriptions of what it means to have this uniquely intimate, loving relationship with another person in the world. Right? It's not a, an oppressive set of rules. If you keep these rules, you win your spouse's love. It's a description of what it means that I love you. Because I love you, because I want that kind of relationship with you, uh, this is the shape that's going to take in my life. That's what wedding vows are. You know, um, when I was growing up, we still had hippies, you know, and uh, there was an idea current that a real, truly authentic, loving marriage is one that doesn't have any rules or stipulations. Anybody know John Hartford's music? Yeah, I usually get that when I ask questions about songs. But John Hartford, old enough to be a good hippie, wrote Gentle on My Mind that Glenn Campbell made famous. I know you're, not, you're still not nodding. Um, but... <laughs> It's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk that makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. It just sounds terrible. But, you know, <laughs> you know, it's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds and the ink stains that have dried upon some line. Hey, man, I don't need no piece of paper to prove that I love you. Uh, I like where I can leave anytime I want that version of loving you. <laughs> I like promising that if you get sick or uh, if you get poor uh, or if I find someone I like better, then I can just go ahead and go. That's my kind of authentic love. And we look at that and we say, you know, that's not a better version of love than the old marriage vow version of love. Right? The marriage vow version is a richer, more substantive kind of love. And if you think, I want to have a religion that's stipulation-free, I want to... Just, you know, talk to God when I want to, but the law, you know, the laws are just inauthentic, stifling, 
you know, they limit my humanness and creativity and things. Um, you're not going to have a better kind of relationship with God. You're going to have a much worse kind of relationship with God. Less delightful and less beautiful. Because, you, know, um, you know, you see in TV shows and things that uh, groomsmen will say at the bachelor party, Woo, it's your last night of freedom. And, like, no groom ever says that. You know, idiot groomsmen say that. The groom, if he was saying that, it's like, well, why would I get married if I thought that? You know, if I thought it was better to be free, I wouldn't get married. Groomsmen kind of like, ha, 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 and laugh along if somebody says that, but they don't feel it. They're like, I'm not doing this because I have to. I'm not, uh, I didn't get tricked. I want this. I, those vows weren't like the end of a negotiation I had with this woman about, you know, how loyal do I have to be to you before we can stay married? Um, those vows are a description of what I want my life to look like because I really like her. I really love her. I really want that kind of relationship with her. Right? Real relationships have rules and stipulations. If you try to keep the stipulations without the relationship, they're oppressive. Right? They're oppressive. You're just knuckling under authority. I know I'm supposed to do what's right because I think God would want me to do what's right, so I better do what's right. And I know I'm not doing what's right very well, but I know I need to really try hard to do what's right. There's no freedom. There's no delight in that. This is the emancipated law for people who have been set free by God. And if you don't feel any of that freedom in relationship, then the laws aren't going to make any sense and they're not going to give you a delightful life. Because right? what God's law demands is that you love Him with your whole heart, whole mind, whole strength. And if you just knuckle under and comply outwardly to His law... You're not doing it because you love him, and so you're not keeping the law. If you don't do it out of deep love for him, you aren't keeping the law, no matter how compliant you are. And so if you don't have a relationship that enables you to love him uh, without just being terrified all the time of him, then you're never going to be able to keep his law out of love. So the relationship is essential, or you're never going to be able to obey. Right? And it puts... It puts obedience in personal terms. It's not just like, here are the rules, are you keeping them or not, here's a scorecard. But it's more like a marriage where you say, um, these are the stipulations of a marriage. If you break them, it's not just that you broke a rule, it's that you broke my heart. Right? You, you, you attacked our love. You know, you, I take it personally right? if you break the rules and the marriage stipulations. Just to use another outdated example, do you remember the... the movie they did in jo about John Grisham's book, The Firm. And, uh, you know, Jeannie Triplehorn was uh, Tom Cruise's wife in that, and he got kind of snookered into having an affair on a trip by people who were going to blackmail him. And uh, he was having to confess this to her over dinner, and he, and he said to her very earnestly, he said, it didn't mean anything. And if you remember what she said back, which is uh, very insightful, she said, it meant everything. Right? It meant everything. Because she was looking at the rules in the context of a relationship. And we have to look at the rules with God in the context of that relationship. That it's a matter of love to Him and closeness to Him and delight in Him uh, that we keep His law or don't. And so... If you don't see it in the relational context, they're just going to be arbitrary rules.
that you just are meant to knuckle under and follow uh, and try to squeeze in as much fun in between as you can. And that's not at all what God's law is for. So relationships have rules. Good relationships also have freedom. A good relationship with God uh, has freedom in it. And this is what, if I could give you any gift I could give you, is to convince you of this. And uh, if I could ask for one thing from God is that I could be convinced of this. And that is that Christians really live in a free relationship with God. Where he's really delighted with us. Where he's not angry with us. Not constantly disappointed with us. But genuinely, really happy with us and delighted with us. It's a hard thing to believe. But he says this in the passage. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm the one who set you free from your slavery. And the exodus from Egypt has always been, throughout the Bible, throughout church history, it's always been like the picture of Jesus rescuing us from our rebellion against him. You know, it's always kind of the type of our being delivered from slavery to our own rebellion or slavery to our addictions or slavery to the devil. Uh, just uh, our war against God. And he's saying, look, I've come and rescued you from that. I've set you free from the chains that you've wrapped yourself in. I've set you free to come and be in a relationship with me. And now I want you to be able to take delight in that relationship. All right? Um, we've been rescued by Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb. Uh, the lamb that was killed, the blood put over the door frames in Egypt before Passover night when they came out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. Right? We say at the Lord's Supper every week, uh, Jesus, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. We've been freed and rescued by what Jesus did for us on the cross. So now we live in a relationship with him that we didn't earn. We didn't do anything to get into that relationship. There are no credits on our side of the ledger. We've been given this as a gift. You've been set free and put in a new relationship with God that you never earned and never could earn. And just as you didn't do anything to get yourself into it, you can't ever do anything to get yourself out of it. Do you believe that? Just as you didn't do anything to get yourself into it, you can't do anything to get yourself out of it. Um, you are loved with an unbreakable love by your Heavenly Father because of Jesus Christ. And anyone whose hope is in Jesus is in that secure, loved relationship. Now, um, because of that, you're supposed to say, well, I don't want another God. <laughs> I'll have no other gods before you because you're the God who rescued me. You're the God who's loved me when I didn't deserve it at all. You're the God who knows me through and through and hasn't turned your back on me. You know, Walker Percy said, we love those who know the worst about us and don't turn their faces away. And God knows the worst about us and hasn't turned his face away. He's caused his face to shine on us and be gracious to us. Right? It's the Christian good news. that You're set free from guilt. So the weight on your conscience from your past sins and the things that you look back on your life and cringe about, God does not look at those things or hold them against you anymore. He really doesn't. Right? You're also free from condemnation. That no matter how bad a Christian you are, no matter how uh, horrified you are about how you've behaved in the past, um, you're never going to be condemned for what you've done. 
Everything God could have held against you rightly, He's held against Jesus instead of you. So He doesn't hold it against you anymore. You're set free from ever having to try to earn God's love and favor. Any more than a baby child has to earn their parents' love and favor. You don't have to earn His love and favor because it's given to you as a gift. Not a reluctant gift. God came to our rescue because He wanted to. He knew full well who we were. He knew full well what a good or bad Christian we were going to be. And He still wanted you. And He still came for you. You don't ever have to fear His rejection. He'll never turn His face away from you because Jesus has been rejected for you. He said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He was forsaken, you will never be forsaken by God because of Jesus Christ and what He's done. But if I know you, and you're anything like me, you hear that and you go, yeah, 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 I know. I know, that's Christian talk. But I also know who I am. I know how um, the more I look at God's law, the more I see about what I should have done that I haven't done. The more I see uh, how evil the motives are behind the things I did that were wrong already, but now I see they're even worse than I thought they were. I know sins of omission and commission. I know that even my good works are tainted by bad motives. And the more mature a Christian you come to be, the more you know that. The more you see how bad your sins really are. And so the more you see how bad your sins really are, the more you feel like God couldn't possibly rightly, justly love me. He has to be miserably disappointed in me. He has to be exasperated. He cannot look on me with delight or favor. Um, He just can't. It's preposterous to say that God could love me if I'm being honest at all. I've got my addictive, embarrassing kind of sins that I feel like anybody that's a grown-up ought to be able to change, but I can't change. And then I've got the kind of sins that I don't even have any hope about, like pride and envy and selfishness, that I don't even hardly confess anymore because I don't think there's any chance that I could legitimately repent from those things. I figure the day I die, I'm going to be about as proud as I am today and about as envious as I am today, and I figure you probably are too. And so when you know that and you think about that and you think, well, God hates people who are proud, and God hates people who are envious, and of course he hates me. He's bound to. And what we're told in the Christian good news is, yeah, but he doesn't. (laughs) Yeah, all of his anger about that has been poured out on Jesus instead of you, and now he's really not mad at you anymore. It's hard to believe it. It's hard to believe it. We still live like we're slaves as Christians, right? We still live guilt-ridden, afraid of God, afraid that he's disappointed in us. We are dishonest, we fake being more holy than we are with each other so that uh, we can keep up appearances, uh, but are terrified that if people really knew us, they wouldn't want anything to do with us. Miserable and lonely and self-loathing. And that's the freedom for which Christ set us free. Those are, that's the freedom that the Christian life has. And people around us know that we don't have any joy, that we mostly just get angrier as our lives go on because we're not getting much better and we know we ought to be, and we are mad at ourselves, and we're mad at God because He hasn't made us any better. And, you know, the idea that we're living this free life where we dance before God and delighted connection to Him just looks like a farce and a tease. 
but it's really the kind of relationship we're supposed to have for him, uh, have with him. So we live this joyless, nose to the grindstone, I got to keep the law alive and want to tell people how great it is to be a Christian. And uh, it's not very persuasive. Here's the deal that the Christian good news is true. God has held against Jesus everything that he could rightly hold against you. It's true, it's gone. And so you're forgiven, you're righteous, you're delighted in. You are the apple of His eye. These are all things that He says in the Scripture. He knows you absolutely through and through. And these things are still true. He still wants you. He's not going to condemn you. Jesus is the one who can present you before God's throne without fault and with great joy. That's either a really mean joke or uh, the best news in the world. That you can stand before God without fault and with great joy. Not because you're perfect and your record's perfect, because it's not, and it's not going to get that much better probably. You stand with great joy and without fault before God because Jesus presents you. Uh, Because you're granted, what the Bible says, you're granted His righteousness, His record. God loves you as if you had lived the life that Jesus lived for you, even though you haven't. So the law is not a threat to you anymore if you're a Christian. It's not a threat to you anymore. Instead of a list of accusations against you that makes you feel worse about yourself, because you're forgiven and in a relationship with God through grace, it now becomes a list of uh, things that you could do that delight God, that you can wake up every day and choose from. Hey, this is something I can do that delights God. This is something I know that pleases Him. This is something, this is a way I can delight in my connection to Him. Um, These are the laws, these tell me His love language and what He delights in. And I'm free to pursue them. And if I pursue them poorly, which of course I'm going to, if on my best day I'm shot through with evil motives and things, God is still going to accept my works as delightful. Because Jesus Christ forgives the sin in our works. Now, I mean, that may sound like a cop-out for slackers. um, But it's not. It's not because if you don't have a sense of love from God, if you don't have a sense of your free standing with Him as His loved child, um, then you're never going to be able to keep the law of love, to love God with your whole heart. Unless that freedom and the relationship's there, you're never going to be able to keep His law anyway. Um, but it doesn't stand as a threat to us anymore. That's why in the, the Gospel reading we read, we said, unless your righteousness is better than the most religious people on earth, the scribes and Pharisees, then you won't enter God's kingdom. You're like, what? <laughs> I'm not going to be more righteous than the most righteous person I know on earth. What he's saying is, yeah, that's right. But the standard is Jesus' righteousness. You have to be as righteous as Jesus. And of course you're not. That's why you need Jesus. That's why you need a Savior like Jesus. And the Pharisees couldn't stand that because they were winning the morality race. They were the best people. And he said, that's not enough. If you're going to be at peace with God, you have to have more righteousness than that. And that's what Jesus gives us. And that's why we have standing with Him. We sing about it better than we believe it. William Cooper's great song, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear His pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see what Christ has done for us changes the law from duty into choice. We also sing, let us, John Newton's hymn, let us love and sing and wonder, let us praise the Savior's name. 
He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. All that the law threatened us with is gone because of what Jesus has done. He's quenched Mount Sinai's flame. So, I don't know. Listen, let me just soak in this a minute. He isn't mad at you. He isn't constantly disappointed with you and exasperated with you. He doesn't think your partial obedience is base hypocrisy. He doesn't think your partial obedience is base hypocrisy. He is served by your partial obedience. He takes joy in your partial obedience. Because partial obedience is all you ever offer him. He isn't embarrassed of you or ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to be called your God. That's true of Christians generally. It's true of Christians specifically too. God is not ashamed of you. He isn't exasperated. He doesn't just look at the tainted parts of your obedience and say, yeah, but what about your motives? He doesn't. He's like a father who delights in his children's service to him. He doesn't roll his eyes when you say you love him. He doesn't say, yeah, right. If you love me, you'd obey me. You're confessing the same sin for the 1500th time and you're telling me you love me? You think I'm a fool? Isn't that what you would say? That's not what he says. He says, I love you too. <laughs> like crazy. That's what he says. He's drowned your sins in the sea of forgetfulness. And he does not look at them anymore. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. He makes his face to shine on you and is gracious toward you. He lifts up his countenance upon you and gives you his peace. It's what he has ringing in your ears every time you leave church, right? Because he wants you to think not that he's exasperated with you, but that he loves you, that he's delighted in you because of Jesus. Whatever's lacking in your good works, Jesus has already forgiven. He's already forgiven, and he's delighted to show you mercy. So I have a friend who's a really wonderful uh, minister, famous for talking about how parents should raise their children as Christians. Uh, sounds pretty scary sometimes to listen to it. You know, it sort of feels like if you do it just right, your kids are going to grow up and really be perfect. And uh, he never says that, but it's, you sort of feel that way, like you want your kids to really behave well when they're around him. And... Uh, his adult son got arrested for something pretty embarrassing. And uh, he went to the court hearing where his son was being arraigned. And, uh, you know, everything was said embarrassingly in the court in public. Here's the guy that talks about raising your kids the right way and, you know, they'll turn out great. And here's his kid uh, standing in front of the bar for some embarrassing crime. And a friend of his asked him afterwards, he said, I'm guessing that was terribly embarrassing and, and shameful for you. And he said, said, he looked at him and said, you can never be embarrassed of someone you love. You can never be ashamed of your child. And uh, those are sweet words to me to hear. You can never be ashamed of someone you love. You can't be embarrassed of your child. And for us to think that the Father, with all of his holiness and demands is not ashamed of us, not embarrassed of us, not disgusted with us, not exasperated with us, 
but delighted in us is the magic of the Christian life. That every bit of all that that he should justly feel towards us, he has put on his son instead of us, is the good news of the Christian gospel. Right? This relationship with God is the relationship we have with God. And it's the context for every one of his laws in our lives. Uh, it flows out of the beauty of that unbreakably loving, gracious relationship. So as we go through the Ten Commandments, remember this and believe this, that God is not angry with you any longer, but that you live in his delighted grace. Now let's pray.